0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. We don't have Michelle here today, but I do have Jimmy. Hi, Jimmy.
1: Hi, roped in again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm becoming very, very bossy. Or becoming, (laughs) Becoming is not really the right word there. Um, We also have a special guest this week, which is Dr. Alice Moody, who is a repeat guest. She last talked to us about the CIA, and now she's back to talk about more things crime. Hi, Alice. Hi. Um, So today, we're going to talk about some crime podcasts. We are all a bit obsessed with crime podcasts crime podcast sorry and so we thought it'd be a good opportunity to have a little chat about it so Alice you brought this uh the suggestion I suppose for this episode to us so what strikes you as interesting about these crime podcasts?
2: So I think what I find really interesting about them is the way that they fit into a larger sort of um ecology of crime fiction and crime fiction particularly on broadcast media um it struck me over the last several decades that A lot of TV crime fiction is extremely um, focused around the police procedural and extremely invested in redeeming the police as kinds of figures of um, both excellent detection, but also upstanding morality, often in difficult circumstances, to the point that when we adapt someone as, like, un- police procedural as Sherlock Holmes into a US context, you get something like Elementary, which somehow manages to reimagine Sherlock Holmes as the, a police procedural par excellence. Mm, mm. Um, so I think that there's been this kind of extremely strong tendency over the last few decades to really kind of foreground the police in US um, broadcast crime. And what's really interesting to me about the new kind of wave of true crime podcasts is the extent to which they really quite dramatically break from that model. Um, So starting perhaps with something like Serial, which um, puts the kind of investigative journalist at the centre and has a real time kind of engaging with the police, but tends on the whole to be quite sympathetic to them, um, while at the same time implicitly making the argument that they haven't solved the crime in the right kind of way, even if it was for reasons beyond them, and moving through to kind of, I guess, something like um, serial successor undisclosed which adopts a much more hard line about the police um, which comes at it from the perspective of defense attorneys mostly mm. and which understands the police to basically be a corrupt and corrupting force in the process of investigation and that strikes me as a really interesting um kind of development historically because we are in the U.S. context at this moment where The police are for the first time really kind of coming under a lot of scrutiny Mm. um, in the wake of Black Lives Matter and in a context where um, the inequitable treatment of African Americans in particular at the hands of the law is being so heavily foregrounded that there's I think a renewed skepticism about the the police as a kind of um, moral and stabilizing force in society and I, I think what's interesting to me about these podcasts is the way that that seems to kind of be reflected in the way we're imagining crime and how we imagine crimes to be solved or solvable
0: yeah and i think it has a like a a huge uh, impact upon the way we do perceive the police because i remember listening i mean i i was into sort of serial from the get-go and um it it struck me that the police there had kind of failed um the victim's family and also anuncia's family um and I am, found myself really positioned to be very hostile to the police by the time Undisclosed came about. And my perception of the police in every kind of... Like, even in the Australian context, is is now kind of irre, irrevocably shaped by that kind of disgust in the police that I felt upon listening to Serial and Undisclosed. So it works upon you. You know, you feel like, oh, yeah, the police are just you know they're bumbling idiots they're you know they're incompetent in um you know that's the kind of best case scenario is that they're bad at their jobs and the worst case scenario is they're actively corrupt um so i found my own kind of um attitude towards the police shaped maybe i'm a very susceptible listener or something um but also it kind of harks and harkens back to as you say sherlock holmes you know in the sherlock holmes um stories the police are, are not corrupt, but they're they're idiots compared to Sherlock Holmes, you know, who is this great intellect. So it's funny how we seem to have, like, returned to almost the kind of classical detective model where, like, an amateur, a really clever amateur, um, is the one to kind of break open the case and the police are just, you know, these bumbling idiots who just, you know, stumble about and go for the easiest option, I suppose. Jimmy, you're the expert on (laughs) detectives,
1: Well, I was just going to say, um, do you think part of that has to do with the um, vested interest um, of the police themselves? Because um, the detective, and in this case, the journalist, are just uh, curious about what what's going on, mm. so they're taking uh, they're looking at it from a very objective perspective. Whereas the police uh, have all this pressure put on them. You know, you must crack the case. You must mm. crack the case. You must do it soon. So there's all this pressure from the public, from yeah, you know, from yeah. high above, to. Uh, get them to actually do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Um, And so objectivity in a way gets removed from that. So do Mm. you think that has something to do with um, Mm. uh, the situation? Yeah, I think that's
2: absolutely how it's being framed in these podcasts. And Mm. I think, again, I think that's really interesting because it is such a shift from even like still running and still extremely popular crime TV shows, which still tend to present... The police as being fundamentally uncorrupted, like mm. that there might be a bad apple or a bad egg somewhere in the lot, but you can throw them out. And that basically most police officers are involved in that kind of pure pursuit of the truth that's now being kind of shifted onto the citizen journalist. Mm. Um, in some sense, it's a it's a hark back, like we were saying earlier, not just to homes, but also to this kind of 30s and 40s hard-boiled detective thing where there's a real sense that the police are actively corrupt. And they're corrupt not because any individual police officer is corrupt, but because the system as a whole is kind of broken, rotten to its core, mm-hmm. um, and that you need someone who can come in from outside that system if you want to get to the truth, if you want to really engage
0: with it.
1: Yeah, I think nothing probably epitomizes that more than um that Netflix series Making of a Murderer, which I know mm. Stephanie loves, but <laughs> I absolutely deplore because I, I couldn't go beyond, you know, the first two episodes. Um, so Steph, can you explain a little bit about that, that series because mm. I I just I, I found myself not being able to continue <laughs> watching it, but because of this um it seemed to me so one sided that the police were painted very, very clearly as the villain. Of yeah. this piece you know there was no two ways about it everything was implying they're corrupt they did all this they framed him um not that i i don't think that that could be the truth but there wasn't an attempt like serial does to present a more objective perspective yeah um, does the series improve <laughs> yeah no i think it does
0: i i don't actually think that I, I think that they had a certain viewpoint in making a murderer so um for those who haven't seen it is this it's a show about the conviction um a man had been um, unjustly convicted of a, of a rape and he's let go um, when DNA evidence proves that he's he's innocent to that particular offence. And then about a year later, the, this, this man, Stephen Avery, is arrested for another subsequent murder. And this is the, really the story of the, that subsequent murder and his nephew, his young nephew, is implicated in it, etc. Um I think in that case, what is, becomes clear as they go on is there was serious police corruption when it came to a coerced confession um, relating to Brendan Dassey, who is Stephen Dassey's young nephew, who I think was about 15 at the time, um, and who was um, slightly intellectually disabled. And because of the way the police questioned him, it was, it was clear, and it's actually this morning a judge upheld this actually, that it was a coerced confession. So that struck me as a kind of um, obvious and, and quite a clear case for, for coerced confession because there's, there's footage of the, of the confession and you can see how they're coaching him through it. Um, there was also a number of conspiracy theories, I suppose conspiracy theories that were raised in that in that series about police um, shoddy police work. Um, potential corruption and so forth. Um, I think the series does improve and and does focus more on the victim as the series goes on. Um, But it's certainly part of that kind of suite of 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 um podcasts or true crime kind of stories that came out around roughly around the same time as Serial. That certainly paints the police in a certain light. Um, I suppose too that that what is what's going on here to pick up on Alice's point about the system being corrupt is that. All of these things have been wrapped up in like movements to reform the criminal justice system in the U.S. in particular, based on a kind of citizen engagement with the with the um, the criminal justice system. Um, so undisclosed becomes increasingly interested in. Um, Interviewing people and engaging with the idea of what reforms could actually be made to, to make the, the system, um, run better. And I think what's also a complicating factor in all this that comes up in Making a Murderer and it comes up in Undisclosed and it comes up in, to a certain extent, in other podcasts as well, is that a lot of these, um, judges, judges are elected, right? Um, prosecutors are often elected as well in America. And so there is, as you say, this actual, like, real imperative to clear cases. Because otherwise you won't get elected, right? Um, So I think that's what um, a lot of this um, focus on the kind of perceived corruption of the system um, has has got at its core, you know, that drive to satisfy the public kind of hunger for harsh punishments versus, like, the actual kind of objective pursuit of the truth. And so that that kind of... um, understanding of the of the criminal justice system in America underpins a lot of these kinds of conversations about, you know, the system being Russian, which as you say, harks back to Raymond Chandler.
2: I also think um there's maybe like the system is being conceived here in two kind of related but maybe separate ways. Um and I was thinking when you're talking about making a murderer, one of the things that really struck me about that is that it's really interested both in the critique of the way that, you know, crimes are kind of made, I suppose, by the police and how kind of the solutions to crimes are produced um, rather than sometimes found. Mm. But also, it's really interested in the dynamics of class in the US and the way in which in this small town, the kind of um, class position of Mm. the family so heavily shapes so many of the responses. And we can see something similar in, say, Serial, where there's a kind of a... um, in the background, a suspicion that there's something about a kind of Islamophobic kind of mm. underpinning to the way that this all plays out, um, and that again becomes much more foregrounded in undisclosed. Mm. Um, and I'm, I think, so we have on the one hand this sort of sense that the system is corrupt in the sense that it provides a series of perverse incentives, that it doesn't hold people to account, it puts a lot of pressure under them on them to clear dockets, it um, puts a huge amount of kind of It requires a lot of them and doesn't really give them the resources so mistakes will be made and there's in some ways those mistakes are incentivized within the system and then there's also a kind of a larger sense in which this is part of bigger structural problems that society as a whole shares Um, inequality class um, related problems but also race related problems perhaps gendered problems although that interestingly tends not to be quite so Mm foregrounded. But I'm thinking as well of um, what was the other TV series where they got a confession right at the end with a really rich guy. The The Jinx. The Jinx, which seems to be kind of like um, the counterpoint to making a murderer in that sense. Mm This is like incredibly rich people are basically untouchable. Incredibly poor people are completely exposed to whatever the state wants to do with them. And when you read them together, you actually get much more than just a case for criminal reform, a bigger mm. critique of the way in which US society as a whole is organised.
0: Well that's why I really liked making a murderer, even though I do take Jimmy's point that the the victim is, is somewhat absent, is an absent kind of presence in the um in the series. But to me it was about class. Mm. Um the whole the whole um story was about, you know, what happens to a a completely disempowered kind of, you know, white trash, um quote in quotation marks family um when they come up against the mechanisms of the state and and to me that was what serial was about too because both the the victim and the um you know the the person who is sitting in jail at the moment for the mur- for the murderer so the alleged murderer um are, are of an ethnic underclass i suppose mm. um and one of and, you know our said is is islam and this is you know prior to september 11 but we're still we've you know, there's yeah. still demonstrable yeah, yeah. Islamopho- Islamophobia going on. So for, for me, these, the appeal to all of this, I suppose, is not just the kind of mechanisms of the criminal justice system, which operates differently here in Australia, but also this kind of exploration of class.
2: Mm. Yeah, and and the way in which... Um, it's I guess what's really interesting to me is that it's kind of a, a shift back to a different way of understanding what crime fiction is supposed to do. Mm. Um, that one thing that crime or true crime might do is provide you with a sense of closure and comfort and satisfaction. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of recent um, TV crime shows have really done, that they offer this kind of disruption to the system. And then by the end, they sort of contain it and solve it and everything's okay. And we can go back to having our nice life. And we know that even if occasionally these horrific things erupt, within the social fabric they're not fundamentally expressions of the problems of the social fabric or things that will disrupt it in any permanent way mm. these things seem to these new um podcasts and um, kind of documentary tv shows do seem to be suggesting that actually what crime does is in a sense the way that crimes are handled is symptomatic of a much larger thing that it's a shift to w- away from thinking about crime fiction as a sort of um that therapeutic working through of the system and understanding it much more as a mode of critique, mm. as a way of exposing fundamental problems within the social fabric, um, of which these crimes are just symptoms. Yeah, I
1: think that's really interesting because um, just driving here, I was listening to a podcast um, on uh, Lindy Chamberlain, mm. Uh, mm. and you know that's very, very you know, endemic to exactly what you have just talking about there. Um, and it's actually about a, a playwright who. Decided to get uh, apparently Linda Lindy Chamberlain had a lot of fan letters, uh, and she said she ended up deciding to collate all these letters to, to to do a play that would actually uh, reveal what Australian society was like during the nineteen eighties when this was all happening. Mm-hmm. And she says she waded through twenty thousand letters wow. from mm-hmm. you know people who uh, from uh, all sides of the camp. Some who say you know oh, you're absolutely guilty and you're repulsive, and other people saying you know oh, I know exactly you know what, what what's like and uh, very very sympathetic. Uh, and she said one of, the, one of the really interesting things she said there was that a lot of the people who were sympathetic towards Lily Chamberlain's during the early 80s when this was happening mm. were actually Aboriginals who had experience with dingoes and who, who said, you know, the elders that told them about um, dingoes uh, abducting babies and such. Uh, but the reason why, or one of the possible reasons why Lily Chamberlain, uh, why this theory or this idea didn't take was because possibly Australian society uh, at the time didn't take Aboriginal... Um, testimony as seriously mm. you know, mm. as they as they should, so it was very uh, representative of the time period
2: that 's so interesting yeah and uh, it 's also such an interesting kind of intersection there of indigenous knowledge um, with kind of expectations about what constitutes a good mother and how you perform motherhood and mm. the Lindy Chamberlain case is so interesting in that regard as well. so when you put them together, yeah again it 's this sense that crimes kind of surface things that we don't want to acknowledge in our society and they become these sites for the contestation over the existing power struggles mm. that we're trained not to look directly yeah. at. Yeah, and, and I
1: think these cases also show that um, a lot of times the crimes are actually created mm. through a form of narrative that the public actually prefers to hear over the real narrative. Mm-hmm. So with that story, you know, uh, they didn't want to hear that a dingo could potentially take a baby. They want to know that, oh, the mother was actually more monstrous and, and, and mm. did the killing. Uh, and you know the the same thing happened with Cyril I think you know um, I think one of the things I found really fascinating about Cyril was I don't quite know what happened to make I mean the whole case hinged on that one key witness Mm -hmm. which is um, Jay so where did his story come from why did he you know that's the part that always troubled me
0: listen to Undisclosed Yeah, if you haven't they have a lot yeah. of theories oh, okay. they have a lot of theories <laughs> they have a lot of theories <laughs> yeah. I feel like I know enough about the Adnanzaian case that I could <laughs> competently represent him in court maybe like me five minutes time maybe give me five minutes to, to prepare myself but other than that we'll think about it now and yeah.
1: want you to but present but that is that. Yeah. really <laughs>
0: interesting
2: right because if we think about presenting a case in court as like you say Jimmy mm-hmm. a kind of presenting of a narrative that what you have in a court case are two opposing narratives of how to make sense of this what's maybe really interesting about these recent podcasts is that they're not at all interested in giving you the narrative that's Mm -hmm. kind of what's frustrating that was what I think a lot of people found frustrating about the end of Serial for instance that Mm -hmm. it doesn't end with this is the narrative instead Mm -hmm. it's interested in kind of the step back the process by which the narrative is produced and how we move from this kind of morass of information that we're presented with into something that we can kind of understand as a story that makes sense and that accounts for all of the information and kind of allows us to get it. And most often these podcasts don't really provide that. They can't move from the information that's provided to the sort of synthetic, synthesized Mm -hmm. narrative that is the point of crime fiction historically, right? That Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that often gets said about crime fiction, that it's twice written, that you get or the information laid out, and then you get the, like, where someone sits down and tells you the story again in a way that makes sense of the information you've got.
0: One interesting kind of um, e- example that ki- that kind of gives you an answer but also doesn't give you an answer mm-hmm. is In the Dark. Um, I don't know if if, if you guys have, have heard In the Dark. Um, it's about a it, – it was a case, basically, that was solved before the podcast start just before the podcast started so it's this um it's this case of a the abduction and murder of a um i think he was 11 or 12 year old boy jacob weddling um and what what happened is that there was a a confession i think three days two days before the first episode was due to to drop and what the the show so what the show did is demonstrated that okay this case has been solved um but let's look at the fact that it's taken 25 years for the case to be solved and also it was one of the cases that in America led to the um, compilation of the sex offenders register Mm -hmm. which has actually caused a lot of kind of social um, issues around who goes on it and how it's used Um, so what was interesting about that is that we knew the answer in in a way that we we don't for for other true crime podcasts where they resist that kind of closure Mm -hmm. narrative as you were talking about but at the same time it again draws attention to the kind of incompetence, I suppose, of the police, um, where the the murderer was kind of under their under their thumb, and they they kind of knew that he was a, a person that they should suspect, but they let him go and they didn't follow up. And you know, there's a lot of time in the in the um, podcast devoted to the fact that they didn't do a, a sweep of the neighborhood in those initial kind of you know. With all of these cases, they said the first 24 hours is most important and they didn't do a sweep of the neighbourhood. If they had, they would have found this guy straight away. And so it, it both gives you that kind of narrative of closure at the same time as saying, hey, these these narratives of closure are really delayed and unacceptably delayed because of police incompetence. So it, it's, it's a really interesting example of, of closure but not closure.
2: That's really interesting. And actually, have you have either of you listened to
0: Up and Vanish? I have. I haven't finished it. I, I gave up after a while. Well, exactly.
2: No, but like I, I did too. And I think that there's a reason why we both gave yeah. up, which was that the crime got solved. Mm. Um, it's a really interesting example that like, it starts out being exactly one of these investigative podcasts of this long kind of unfinished, um, unsolved murder. And then about, I think, what was meant to be about halfway through their run, they the police make an arrest mm. they make an arrest quite independently of the podcast although obviously the fact that those guys been going back and asking questions does seem to have stirred mm. maybe something up that's led to it but it's not like the podcast found the smoking gun that they then handed over mm. to the police. Although
0: I think he was pretty keen to kind of claim Oh <laughs> yes, no 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 no, no. he yeah. very much
2: was but the, yeah. the thing was because he didn't actually have the inside knowledge about how that thing had happened, he didn't really have a story to tell and the police then kind of locked everything down but it was also just really interesting to me the way that that arrest which like you say he did hail as a great victory for the podcast also really took the wind out of its Mm sails that there's nothing more that once there is an answer there's nothing more to do that once the police have made an arrest the police no longer serve the role of being the kind of the um, I think a lot of these podcasts get their narrative tension Mm. from their relationship to the police their antagonism to it Um, It shifted to become a lot more about like what kinds of documents are we going to have access to court cases around um, information being shared at this moment, getting kind of trying to do character profiles. There there was a real flailing, I Mm. think. And that's in itself, I think, kind of symptomatic of the way that these podcasts really do their narrative impulse turns on their lack of narrative closure and the impossibility of getting narrative closure.
1: That's really interesting because that um, sort of coincides with uh, one of the reasons, I think, why we read detective fiction um, to, in a way, help solve the case. So one of of the things, one of the joys of reading detective fiction is trying to see whether you can figure it out before the detective does. And, in a way, you're suggesting that one of the reasons why we're really liking these podcasts is we we want to also play that detective figure and try to solve it and then once the truth comes out we're kind of like well that's it that's that's the end of it uh, and there's nothing more <laughs> then it becomes yeah. boring Then it becomes bo- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> boring. after that and, and it's all procedural and we're not interested in the procedure we're interested in trying to get to that truth of the narrative um, so to speak uh, which is something that um Austin freeman was trying to work against in detective fiction mm. so he was saying that uh this whole obsession with the denouement is not really what detective fiction is all about. So he decided to change all that by doing the reverse detective story and starting with the crime, and showing you who actually did it, and then going through the process. Mm-hmm. And personally, I found it quite an effective method, and I was very interested in the entire process of it. But it bombed spectacularly with, <laughs> with the public. They didn't like it so much. And even the critics, um, I won't name names, but uh, let's just say one of my markers was very harsh mm-hmm. on, on, on Freeman for that very aspect. And he said, you know, reading Freeman... Was uh, I think he compared it to chewing on dry grass, <laughs> uh, that it was that dry and yeah. boring to to read. But I found it fascinating, and, and maybe that's my personal interest in it. You know, yeah. like I, I find the process of actually getting to the truth very interesting, but I can see how for a lot of people it's actually about finding out what, what really happened. I
2: wonder if yeah. like true crime has a real advantage here, because the problem with giving it up front, giving the solution up front, is obviously you kind of take some of the... Um, you know, suspense yeah. Yeah, wind out of the sails. Mm. Um and the problem with not giving any denouement at all, which is also something that like, you know, the kind of stuff that I work on doesn't <laughs> tend to do. Um, is that you let you end up feeling really unsatisfied. Whereas with true crime things you can do it by just not providing the denouement but always offering the promise that at some future point it might be solved. Mm. So yeah. you can kind of keep the suspense and the tension running almost indefinitely within that, particularly the serialized Mm. mode that we're all talking about where you have multiple things, but also because they're true, there was, there's still the possibility that one day the murderer might be discovered, that like one day the arrest will be made.
0: Well, there's there's also been really active kind of um, internet communities like, you know, the amateur internet detective who've who've done lots of digging um, around all of these cases, you know, Reddit forums and so forth, who have, you know, put forward and found documents and put forward, um, you know, theories about who the murderer is. So it does does turn us, as you say, Jimmy, that, you know, the, the appeal of detective fiction is turning us into detective. Here we have people actually playing detective, by you know sitting at home and accessing the internet and looking up things and you know going through files and a good example of that too is um there's this new netflix series which i just watched and i recommended to jimmy um called the keepers which is absolutely fantastic i i loved it i thought it was better than making a murderer um and it's about this um this murder of a nun that happened in 1969 and um I'm already hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it becomes a story about child sexual abuse by priests. Huh. And she and the, the kind of speculation that has come up about it, although it's not proved, is that her murder was related to the fact that she was about to unmask the child sexual abuse and was killed as a result of it. Um, but the people that really drive the narrative are these two fantastic women who are in their late or well, mid to late 60s who went to the school at which this all occurred, because this all happened in a, in a high school, weren't abused themselves, but were very close to the nuns, to Kathy, who was murdered, and who became amateur detectives, because the, the case wasn't solved for, you know, however many years it's been, since 1969. I can't do maths off the top of my head. But, um you know, for 40 years. So, yeah. So they take it upon themselves to investigate the case. They set up a Facebook group. They start going through documents. <laughs> I know. And they're so fantastic because they are they are women who have, haven't seen justice served. They haven't seen these institutions protect them. The Catholic Church has caused havoc at this school. And the, the amount of people that have come forward about um, sexual abuse by this one particular priest is staggering. Um, so they've seen systems fail. And so they've taken upon themselves to kind of solve the case. And even now, the, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, because, again, this happens in Baltimore, where things, everything seems to happen in Baltimore, um, are pushing back against them. And it's really the, the investigation and the kind of reopening of the case has been driven by this group of retired women, which, and I find them just wonderful. I'm in love with all of these women. I want them to adopt me. Um, and it, it's just such a, a brilliant example of, of the kind of, positives, I suppose, of this kind of citizen gen- of this citizen detective model, in that they're actually not only doing something um, to try and solve the case, but they're also trying to bring attention to the fact that 50 or so people have come forward with these allegations of child sexual abuse, and the Catholic Church not only did nothing, but actually facilitated the continuing, the, you know, basically that the priest had more access to these children. So... I thought that was a kind of um, a really interesting kind of look at that kind of citizen engagement model. Mm. Um, whereas things like Up and Banished kind of annoyed me because <laughs> yeah. I felt like I felt like he wasn't doing anything particularly, but that he kind of got lucky. Yeah,
1: yeah. you know. And yeah, that's really interesting because um, it just got me thinking about something I think it was Zizek who wrote it uh, about how the joys of reading detective fiction is uh, is for seeing the detective rewrite the narrative that the criminal wrote. Mm. Um, and what you're suggesting there is it's actually not the criminal who wrote the narrative, but those who are harbouring or protecting mm. the criminal and sometimes the corrupt mm. detectives themselves who are actually putting forth this narrative um, and then it's up to the individual or mm. um, journalist, or in this case, you know, two people who have the best interest in it mm. to try to uncover that and rewrite that mm. incorrect mm. narrative, so to speak. Yeah, yeah,
2: and that's really interesting because that also gets to something that i think we've maybe been dancing on which is Mm. that the criminals are surprisingly insignificant here except in the jinx where it's Mm. a kind of a portrait of a criminal Mm. um overwhelmingly the bad guys in these stories are well partly because we never get the denouements we never get an identity of the bad guys so the actual kind of targets of the bad guy critique tend to be institutional or structural or Mm. procedural Um, Which, again, is a really interesting kind of shift, I think, ideologically, because it implies that you can't just like root out the bad apple and Mm -hmm. then you're done. That actually the problems, the bad apples will always exist. And they're kind of insignificant in some ways to most of these stories. That what is really the problem is that there are no systems in place that will successfully solve and solve the the person root out the bad apple and then protect the rest of the citizenry
0: and if and if crime fiction is kind of comforting in that it's you know we're going to have a murderer at the end and we're going to you know this guy's going to get go to jail and you know social order will be restored then that's profoundly uncomfortable that mm. the, the mm. idea that that murders happen justice isn't necessarily served perhaps the wrong person has gone to jail perhaps nobody has gone to jail perhaps the system is at fault that leaves you in a world where what do you do
2: I wonder, too, if that's maybe a difference between the citizen journalist. um, So, for example, these women that you're talking about for whom exposing the wrongs of the system is at stake and all of these people on the Internet who are, (laughs) like, playing detective. Because my sense with those people is that they really are invested in just tracking down the murderer Mm. and rooting that out, that there is much, that it's the... um, the journalist position is the one that's interested in this larger structural or systemic critique, Mm. um, whether that's of kind of grotesque inequalities within society at large or specific problems with the criminal justice system. Whereas the people, the kind of the fascination, I guess, is that it leaves open the space to be a more traditional kind of detective whose job isn't to critique the big problems but to just solve the murderer. And maybe that's kind of part of the impulse that's driving... All this um, on like, fascin- totally fascinating online yeah. kind of, you know, investigation.
0: And it's funny, isn't it, that we take certain positions because, as I said, I must. I think I'm a susceptible listener mm-hmm. because, yeah. um, you know, I'm totally invested in sands. Um, innocence now from from serial and you know as i said i could probably defend him but um and it's funny how i've kind of taken a position <laughs> um through every through watching all of these shows and through listening to all of these podcasts we're we're positioned to do that to, to kind of take on a stance mm-hmm. um and to and to weed that out and to 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 you know to figure out what the right narrative is versus the wrong narrative and and i have to kind of catch myself cuz i remember seeing you know somebody say online that what Undisclosed is done is not prove Ardenne's innocence as much as um, prove that the case against him doesn't stand. Mm-hmm. And I and I found myself bristling and going, but he's innocent. And then I had to think, you know, how much am I being like I don't know, overly mm-hmm. influenced perhaps, or or at least being not as kind of objective as I would like to be and, and taking on that kind of sympathetic position because I feel really bad for him because I feel like even yeah. if he did do it, he's kind of spent enough time in jail anyway. But,
2: I think that that's really interesting as well, just in terms of um what always strikes me when I have occasionally strayed into like, you know, the undisclosed Reddit or whatever <laughs> is just how much, how difficult it is to believe that anyone came up with their narrative of the story based on anything resembling facts, mm. that it always seems to be, again symptomatic of some kind of ideological conviction, either a commitment to the police being right and fundamentally good in the case of those who believe that Adnan is guilty, mm-hmm. um, or a commitment to um, a sense that there is a there are ways in which people get constantly messed around by the criminal justice system, and that we need to be open to that, like a kind of a predisposition towards sympathy with um, the defendant, Mm. which is something that I share perhaps with Mm. you. Um, And it is, it, it has always been, I think really interesting to me that it's couched in this model of like, we are getting to the objective truth and everybody marshals like unbelievable amounts of evidence in support of that. But when it comes down to actually watching how that evidence is used and interpreted, it's, an incredible case study in how much um, ideology shapes mm. even you know, the most kind of pedestrian interpretation of like, what does this statement mean what are the implications of that for a court case which you would think on some level could be falsifiable
1: mm. yeah, I mean I, I don't know much about American legal systems but based on everything I've heard from Um <laughs> 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 uh, but my understanding um, as you just explained it there Steph is that uh, according to their legal system, and possibly our legal system too, I know nothing about the law. I have to admit that right now, um, um, you don't actually have to prove that the person uh, that somebody else did it. You just have to prove that this person that's right yeah. didn't do it. Yeah. And so um, maybe that's the stance that undisclosed is taking. That, you know, that's the narrative yeah. They, yeah. that they wish to to weave. You know, that's that's all they need to prove you know, that he didn't yeah. do it. Um, whereas we as viewers are more interested in well, who did it? Yeah, that's you know, right. Who's that yeah. you know, mysterious? Yeah. Criminal, and that's the point that you were making, Alice, earlier. You know, we, we seem to be not focusing on criminal, maybe because we don't know who the criminal is. And I remember when I was studying um, crime fiction uh, as an undergraduate, my favorite lecturer, I think I mentioned her once, <laughs> maybe that would be my aim in, in my podcast now, to mm-hmm. always mention Mary Louise every single uh, one that I appear. She asked a question in class once, which baffled me because I thought I, I have no idea how to, to answer this. She said, What do you think, and how would you describe uh, the conditions? Necessary for the perfect crime. And I thought, oh, <laughs> how do I go about explaining that? I thought I, that would take too long. I mean, I'd need an essay, and you know, yeah. I, I couldn't quite figure out how to, to do that. And then she explained it in a very, very simple way, and it's stuck in my head ever since. And what she said was that the perfect crime is when everybody knows who did it, but nobody can prove that they did it. Yeah. That's the perfect crime. That's what most criminals are aiming for that the prestige of <laughs> having the, the reputation of committing the crime but no one can pin you eh, to that <laughs> no
0: one can pin you down yeah, uh, yeah.
1: And, and that's the frustrating part uh, and we haven't even seemed to be getting there, except possibly for the jinx which again at the end mm-hmm. he, yeah. he has that slip and uh, and then it's it's proven as, a, as a rule, not proven but it's only arrested as a, as a result yeah so you know is this something that we are hoping to do I suppose as a society to uh in in looking at these cri- these cases that are you know unsolved, are we hoping to be that person to crack that perfect crime and say, yeah, we did it,
0: and to solve the unsolvable, yeah, yeah,
1: uh, which, which is what you were describing is happening in um uh, that series, what's the name, the Keepers, the Keepers, yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean I think too it's interesting to maybe think about the Australian context a little bit because it strikes me as somewhat similar to the way. Um, the American podcasts have, have examined all of these things, but somewhat different, in that there's two that I'm thinking of, two Australian true crime podcasts I'm thinking of. One is Phoebe's Fall, which I think you just started listening to, it's Jimmy. Which disturbing. It, yeah, it's a horrible case. Um, But again, that seemed invested in the idea that the police failed, mm. um, that the police didn't... In particular, the coroner. In particular, the coroner, that they mm. didn't investigate. So this is a case about a girl who was killed in a, a garbage chute, which Oof. is just awful. And it was ruled a suicide by the coroner, but may not have been. And there are certain kind of reasons the family in particular believes that it it wasn't actually a suicide. So that seems very kind of um, along those lines of Undisclosed and so forth, that where it's police failure, institutional failure. But then I've been listening to, it's a new one, it only just started, um, Trace, which is another um, ABC production, And that is actually the main kind of contact for that um, podcast is a retired detective who has a 99% solve rate. And this is his first case and he never solved it and he never gave up on it. And so it seems to hark back to those police procedurals of the heroic policeman. Mm -hmm. Now, he failed in this case. I use failed in quotation marks because I don't think it's reasonable to kind of ask Mm -hmm. anybody to, you know, solve 100% of cases. Um, But he he feels like he's perceived that he's failed and... um, he has this kind of drive to move forward to, to, mm. to continue to, to solve the case. So I think that perhaps um, we don't have the kind of um, same relationship with police and the police procedural that they have in the US, and we seem to be able to kind of go either way in our podcasts in, in ways yeah. that, that, are, that are quite interesting. I think we still tend to in Australia hang on to that idea of that the heroic policeman.
2: Yeah, or maybe it's just that in some ways I think the police in Australia have been less glorified and Mm. so they are less institutionalized as kind of heroes whose failures might require us to launch an entire genre of crime. Yeah. (laughs) Like because they've never been built up so much, they've never been torn down so much. I'm not sure that. How far I would be willing to push that but like I do think that there is a particular kind of cult of the police in the US which doesn't have an exact parallel here Mm. Um, although there is obviously and and also there hasn't been as much publicity I think about the failings of the police in Mm. recent years outside this um, genre that like you know there are significant instances of police brutality against and sometimes police murderings of indigenous Australians mm. in Australia, um, but to the ongoing fury of Aboriginal people, they get nothing like the interest from an Australian audience that Black Lives Matter does. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of sense that the police might be bad but most of the US police are bad and mm. there's a, a kind of, I guess, still an invisibility of the police as an institution in Australia.
0: We don't have as many, uh, like, prominent stories, I suppose, Mm. around all of this. I mean, Lindy Chamberlain case is a Mm. good example because that's an Australian crime that became, you know, an international kind of narrative. But we don't tend to, I think, yet have that kind of scrutiny maybe or or those cases have stayed kind of known to a few people but not known widely. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because we just have you know, less, I suppose, of of that, the kind of podcast culture and the, yeah. you know, the documentary co- culture and because we're a small population and so forth. So there's less people to bring those stories to life. i not you
2: think, are there, have there been many Australian police procedurals?
0: Um, there's Blue Healers, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, I know, that's what yeah. I was
2: thinking of. And that's kind of more, it's a bit more like the bill, isn't it, really? Yeah. It's focused on the police kind of as a setting for a soap opera more than as... Yeah. like it's not quite it's not like CSI it's not got driven by the week by week cases in quite the same way yeah i don't know water rats
0: <laughs> 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 kind of policing <laughs> but i guess maybe
2: that's also part of it right like that mm. we our our history of crime fiction maybe has a different sort of trajectory
0: or maybe we're more invested in the kind of um the outlaw, you know, the Ned Kelly figure or something like that, Um, we tend to like, you know, underbelly and all of those kinds of sympathetic criminals rather than sympathetic police, which goes right back to, as I said, Ned Kelly.
2: Or even like I guess probably the big Australian crime thing of the last decade or so would be Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries.
0: Oh, Miss, how could I have forgotten? <laughs> I know my favourite thing
2: in the whole world. <laughs> Which does have a sympathetic policeman, but is much more so actually, yeah,
0: So like, <laughs> so beautiful, dreamy, <laughs> yeah, policeman. yeah. But
2: like, is still very much in the kind of Agatha Christie model mm-hmm. of um, the detective as being someone who's outside the system, who's able to do things precisely because she's outside the system. The police, although sympathetic, are much more bumbling than Miss mm. Fisher herself. Like, it is, I mean, obviously it's a period piece, but it's also acquiring and very much set within the parameters of the crime fiction of mm. the period that it's recreating. And and they that, need her to solve and the crimes. they need her, right. Yeah. And they... Like, she might get deputized from time to time, but she needs to be external Mm. to the system in order to be able to have the purchase on it. She needs to be independently wealthy for the same reason. Yeah, yeah. Um, that The the kind of the great appeal of that is that she's not exactly an outlaw, but she's very happy to walk that line, should it come to it, that she's happy to kind of break or at the very least bend the rules to... Yeah.
1: She's a very Peter Whimsy. Yeah, type of character isn't she? But and much nicer than Peter but I hate <laughs> <people>. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but she's independent in, in in that sense. You know, she doesn't need to to work um, in the same way that some of the, the other detectives do need to work.
0: Yeah, and she's an unconventional woman. You know, she's she's living in the 1920s, and she's sexually liberated. She's you know intelligent. She's um, she's independent. She doesn't need a man. She's you know got this house of misfits around her. So it's. Aligning the detective with a kind of anarchic kind of yeah, um, yeah. social force, I suppose that she's she's kind of the new woman. She's very much a modern woman, just plunked in a 1920s environment and yeah. with 1920s happiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's and it's really it's quite old-fashioned, as yeah. you say, because it, it does take pleasure in that kind of knowing that there's going to be a case of the week and that Miss Fisher's inevitably going to solve it and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's about all we have time for today. Thank you, Alice. It sounds like um, we have done a lot of listening to (laughs) crime Podcasts. So thank you for allowing us time to talk about them. So thank you. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. And thank you to Jimmy. Always a pleasure. Um, Watch the rest of Making a Murderer, please. Uh, Uh, I'll
1: watch The Keepers.
0: uh, Yeah, watch The Keepers. Watch The Keepers, everybody. (laughs) It is so great. Um, Thanks again to you both. Um, This has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could rate and review us on iTunes, we would be forever grateful. Um, Please send any suggestions our way um, or any feedback on what you like about the show or don't like about the show. Um, We'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye.